Hello, everyone. I'm Jennifer Braverman. And I'm Ellen Selm. And welcome to our podcast, Stories from the Earth. Where we explore mankind's relationship and connection with the natural world. Today, we're going to be talking about the book, The One Straw Revolution by Masunobu Fukuoka. A small little book that packs a big punch. Oh, yeah. And there is a lot in this tiny book. Don't let it fool you. I mean, you know. (laughs) If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see how tiny this book is, but like I have pretty much the whole thing underlined. (laughs) Before we get into the meat of our podcast, I would like to invite um, everyone to donate to this podcast. Donations will go towards helping us with our future projects. Uh, including taking the show on the road, do live on-site interviews at various farmsteads, plant conservation organizations, herbal and natural living schools. Woo! Woo! Yeah. Um, we're we're waiting for doing that. We're just. I think mostly we might be waiting for COVID. Yeah. So if you're watching this in the future, maybe COVID is over. <laughs> <laughs> as well as help us build and launch our herbal education curriculum curriculum, (laughs) aptly titled the People's Herb School. It's a program designed with utmost affordability and thus accessibility in mind. So the more we receive in donations, the cheaper the tuition to the herb school will be. So we're hoping to get it super affordable, super accessible because there's just not enough of that. Now, going to learn about herbal herbal medicine should be accessible for everyone, no matter how much you make, and it's just not right now. We are um, endeavoring to sort of help mitigate this. If you'd like to donate, please go to Anchor. Link is in the description or in the show notes, and you can donate for $1, $10, or $5 a month. Now, we'll go back to talking about our book. <laughs> yeah, I had actually a stumbled across this book so many times like 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago like it kept just popping up in little spheres around me and i never got around to reading it and i'm i'm not really sure what finally prompted me to pick it up so many years later um, i was kind of in the thick of educating myself about permaculture and other resilient farming methods to try to implement on my own property and let me tell you, when I finally read it, I felt like I wanted to kick myself hard for not having picked it up sooner. I honestly believe that had I read that book uh, years ago, it would have helped propel me and inform me in so many ways that I was longing for back then and just didn't even know how to conceptualize. Um, a little bit about our author, Masanobu Fukuoka was a fascinating person, born in 1914 from the Japanese island Shikoku, the son of a rice farmer. He went on to study microbiology and became a plant pathologist and a customs produce inspector. And then during World War II, he went to work for the government and was tasked with studying the growth of crops you know, for reasons such as how to maximize yield during wartime and feed the troops, uh, as well as to try to prevent famine among the citizens. After the war, he returned to his birthplace to focus on farming, and he was distressed by effects of Japan's rapid post-war modernization and the effects of the growing adoption of industrialized agriculture 
the impact that he saw that having on landscapes and ecosystems. And now what's interesting is while he was recovering from a severe attack of pneumonia, he says that he experienced a moment of Satori or personal enlightenment where he had a vision in which something that one might call true nature was revealed. And he saw that all of the accomplishments of human civilization are meaningless before the totality of nature. He saw that humans have become separated from nature and that our attempts to control or even understand the complexities of life are not only futile, but are self-destructive. And from that moment on, he just spent his life trying to return to the state of being one with nature. Um, talk about a profound experience. <laughs> Yeah, I think he he felt like he was dying, um, and that will really kind of kick you in the butt, I guess, mm -hmm. in your outlook. In your life. aha moments. Right. <laughs> I guess it helped him boil down to, like, the nitty-gritty of what matters, right? Like, how do you quantify what matters? He was working a lot beforehand. He was, like, partying, it sounded like. He was just sort of at the bar. I don't know. I just... just doing the standard, this is how you live your life thing. <laughs> and it might it might be, like, sort of the realizations you'd have at, like, a midlife crisis or, yeah, on your deathbed or whatever. But it, I think it struck him at a younger age than most because of the health crisis that he faced and his own... Um, you know, having been raised in an agrarian community certainly weighed in. I think it that sort of combination just really helped set the tone for him to have his eyes opened up to some things that a lot of people won't ever catch. They just aren't with enough background or anything or in the right spot to necessarily come across it the same way, which is part of the reason why it's so great that he went on to do everything he did and put it in writing, because then it does make it accessible to people who might not have had those epiphanies any other way, you know? Yeah, oh, like yeah. his brain was, um, his brain was, while he was sick, his brain was doing all this, like, connecting the dot stuff. Yeah. So, like, suddenly it was like, whoa, and so he was, yeah, pulling from his background. I thought it was interesting because he had such like a epiphany that was sort of so outside of people's experiences at the time that he was running into trouble explaining it. And he has several instances where it sounds like people he was trying to explain thought he was absolutely crazy and they're yeah. like, they were worried about me. <laughs> they thought, I don't know what happened to you. and. So he decided, if I can't explain it to you, I will show you. So he started, you know, actually physically putting these ideas into practice. And I guess that's what led him to do the, the farming. Yeah, he, he began um, developing his own systems of farming, taking his cues from nature, as he claims. And then 30 years of refinement to that process, he was able to develop what he coined as the do-nothing method of farming without soil cultivation like plowing or tilling, no chemical fertilizers, pesticides, weeding, pruning, machinery, or compost. 
Fukuoka was able to produce high quality fruit, vegetables, and grains with yields that were equal to or greater than those of his neighboring farms. And with these methodologies that were so unheard of, uh, especially for their time, it attracted people from all around the world to come see what it was he was doing and how he was doing it um, to get this amazing crop yield, such little management. And the experience prompted him later to then write the book, The One Straw Revolution in 1975. It kind of came at the encouragement of some of his Western students slash disciples that kind of had come to hang out with and learn from him and live on his farm for several years. Later on, he was involved in projects to help reduce desertification around the world. He remained an active farmer till in his 80s. He continued lecturing until just a few days before he died at age 95. Fukuoka also wrote a book titled The Natural Way of Farming, which uh, gets a bit more into the how-to application sort of companion to the One Straw Revolution, because the One Straw Revolution gets more into the philosophy of why he did what he did, and it left a lot of the how you know, to, to be, uh, to be wanted for. So then he did that follow up. And then there was also a book put together later called the road back to nature, regaining the paradise lost. And that's a collection of essays and lectures that he just wrote over the years relating to destructive modern farming habits and things like that. And that sounded really interesting. Cool to check out. Cause then it would be like more completed thoughts, but about mm -hmm. lots of different subjects, you know, all in one book or something like like you're just sitting listening to him just say stuff and I give felt you a like, lecture <laughs> yeah I felt like because he had people come and help him on his farm and stay there and like learn from him and that made me think about like maybe that was how it was he would just sort of say stuff <laughs> and people all over there like oh quick oh that was a good one what a good <laughs> nugget quick write it down don't let him forget <laughs> I don't know if they were doing that but <laughs> That's how I would be if I was there. Like, oh, oh, oh wait, oh, oh that's her. another. <laughs> it was just, a, it was just fascinating, like just to think about it and um, think about where, where we are now and where he was then. And there's mm -hmm. so many ideas in this book that, like, well, are relevant to today, and we're still kicking yeah. around. I really felt like in this book, one of the things he was doing was essentially ant asking the question how the world is broken because he definitely it seemed like he thought there was things going on that were mm -hmm. not that were damaging not yes damaging <laughs> um and how to fix it and he really formed his answers around farming and food and nature yeah so let's dig into that like what it seems like Masanobu was trying to say by writing this book, like the theme of it, like what was he trying to say about life, you think? I, I think there's kind of like a a few sort of key points that stand out. Yes, yes. Um, so I felt like one was interdependence uh, makes plants and also people stronger, not weaker, um, and that we are all connected. One of the quotes I've got two quotes here from the book. To the extent that people separate themselves from nature, they spin out of further and further from the center. At the same time, a centripetal effect asserts itself and the desire to return to nature arises. But if people merely become caught up in reacting, moving to the left or to the right, depending on conditions, the result is only more activity. 
the non-moving point of origin, which ties, which lies, I think it says lies, or ties, I think it's lies outside the realm of yeah, relativity. Mm-hmm. It is passed over unnoticed. I believe that even returning to nature and anti-pollution activities, no matter how commendable, are not moving towards a genuine solution if they are carried out solely in reaction to the overdevelopment of the present age. Whew, boy, that was a prescient uh, <laughs> thought, you know, and he was seeing that rise in, in cusp of the back to lander ecological movement that gave birth to Greenpeace and Earth Day and all that stuff coming out of the 60s and 70s. And he's like, yeah, that's nice and all, but if you're just waiting for, you know, crap to hit the fan before you try to do something good, then how good is it? <laughs> like, ouch, <laughs> but you're totally right. <laughs> I think there's like this sense of, especially like I listen to a lot of, a lot of podcasts these days, and like, there's, there seems like there's a lot of people doing things, but there's just like, there's this question is like, well, what do we do to get us to where we want to be? And how we want, like, our society to be. And I feel like there's this, there's thing where we need to be doing something. But what is it? And I'm wondering if he's saying that we need to be doing anything. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like, maybe do less overall. And then there won't be such a problem. <laughs> right, right. Uh, or, I, I don't know. I think people are... Like, we're so used to doing so many things. Yeah. And that we're like, the solution must be doing all these things, but maybe it's not. Um, and then the second quote is, why is it impossible to know nature? That which is conceived to be nature is only the idea of nature arising in each person's mind. The one who sees true nature are infants. They are They see without thinking straight and clear if even the names of plants are known, a mandarin arch, orange tree of the citrus family, a pine of the pine family, nature is not seen in its true form. An object seen in isolation from the whole is not the real thing. So for me, like I'm, I'm fine with everybody seeing like nature from their perspective, like because everyone's different and everyone sees things differently. And I'm also fine with like the fact that maybe we don't know what true nature is this whole concept of, of parts, us, everybody just seeing a piece mm -hmm. and not seeing the whole comes up throughout the whole book. Like, yeah. Uh, the, um, the sort of compartmentalizing that becomes the modern, at least human mind and predisposition can backfire on us. I think is kind of what he's saying because you get lost in the minutia and then it's like, yeah, you're not seeing the whole forest for the trees, so to speak. Right. It's like when, like in medicine, we divide the mind from the body. We divide each body part from the whole, and it causes a lot of issues because yeah. it's not separate. It's all together. It's all one. If we saw nature as more, if we saw more of nature as a whole piece, then it might be better for 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 us and for, everybody for every living thing. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, let's see, definitely another theme throughout the book, obviously, it's about farming and food. So there's the theme of uh, about organic and healthy food being, you know, the ultimate food and that it, that it should be accessible to everyone, that it shouldn't be expensive. It should be, in fact, cheaper than any other food because it's the most real straight from the earth food that food can be. Um, and he had a couple good quotes I pulled out that uh, kind of solidify that thought. Um, Since natural food can be produced with the least expense and effort, I reason that it should be sold at the cheapest price. The common belief has been that natural food should be expensive. If it is not expensive, people suspect that it is not natural food. One retailer remarked to me that people would not buy natural produce unless it was priced high. I still feel that natural food should be sold more cheaply than any other. If a high price is charged for natural food, it means the merchant is taking excessive profit. Furthermore, if natural foods are expensive, then they become a luxury food only available to rich people that can afford them. If natural food is to become widely popular, if the consumer will only adjust to the idea of low prices do not mean that the food is not natural, then everyone will begin thinking in the right direction. That's a really interesting quote for his time span because this is, you know, before freaking things like the Amazon behemoth buying out the Whole Foods behemoth before Whole Foods even existed, etc. And even then, you know, it's interesting to me because it just goes to show how quickly after World War II, the world as a whole, any, you know, quote unquote modern country took that momentum of big build, 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 grow, 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 post-war economy and industrializing everything. And it made it so that like people just, it's almost like they, I mean, in, in a generation forgot that like, Oh wait, this is how grandma grew her produce and this is normal. And why should it be that expensive? You know, it's like the fact that it became a luxury thing, the fact that he called that out, back then and and now it's like a joke you know where people are like whole foods more like whole paycheck you know (laughs) like stuff like that and it's just like that's a valid question though why should this stuff be you know market supply and demand thankfully i mean i would say even in my lifetime i've seen prices on organic produce going down just because of demand but the whole system was clearly sort of jacked from the outset as he saw it (laughs) yeah it's like he's talking today yeah i mean this book is incredibly relevant i feel like it was just on the cusp and he had the foresight enough to see the writing on the wall and the unfortunate thing is just he was one small human in one small country and only had even for what all he did in his amazing life he still you know was one small footprint and in the whole grand scheme of things. And consequently, that's why people like us here, a couple generations removed, are still finding this and going, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, <laughs> somebody knew what was up. And, oh, man, we need to get with the program here if we want to fix things, you know? Like, geez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, even the fact that he was kind of already seeing how industrial agriculture will fail. And you could argue that we're not 100% there yet because there's still plenty of giant big ag operations 
in my recent trip out to California to visit my sister, we had to go through some areas of like, you know, heart of Agland, California, and just seeing literally the endless acreage of just brown dust bowl. Wow. It was just like really? that, like my the immediate reaction, if you know even a smidge about farming or ecology, is just like, oh my God, this is not sustainable. There is no way in any way, shape, or form that this is sustainable. This is just asking for it. And how much of our food supply comes out of that one state alone, you know, it's freaking ridiculous. Ugh. Yeah, I think we get like all the almonds or some shit. The area where I was was a lot of avocado and lemon plantations and strawberries. In fact, there was, ironically enough, um, a huge Amazon warehouse built in the middle of all of it. And I kind of laughed and I was like, oh, in the middle of like a yeah, future. just out in the middle of all this agriculture. And I kind of like scoffed and laughed and was like, oh, figure, you know, Amazon digging over the world. There they are in the middle. Of, and my what? sister was like, oh, that's because that ag land is so spent that they literally couldn't grow on it anymore. So Amazon's like, okay, well, we'll just do this instead. And it's just like, that's wow. Symbolic. Like, okay, so that field's dead and Amazon bought it out for their use. But like, what happens when all the, re that you know, the chain reaction, the rest of the fields, like. It's like you're, you're killing the fields and you know that. Like there's a segment of the population running the machine that does this agriculture that knows that. Well, how could you, how could you go on with knowing that? Kind of blinders on. I got my job to do. Uh, I don't know what else I could be doing. I'm just doing this because boss said so, you know, whatever, I'm fill only, in the blank. I'm only seeing my piece. Uh -huh, I'm only exactly. doing that. I'm not seeing the whole picture again. The other quote for the, that sort of sentiment, Mr. Fukuoka said, in olden times, there were warriors, farmers, craftsmen, and merchants. Agriculture was said to be closer to the source of things than trade or manufacturing. And the farmers were to, said to be like cupbearers of the gods. Now there's all this commotion about making money. Ultra fashionable produce like grapes, tomatoes, and melons are being grown. Flowers and fruit produced out of season in hothouses. Fish breeding has been introduced and cattle are raised because profits are high. The pattern shows clearly what happens when farming climbs aboard the economic roller coaster. Fluctuations in prices are violent. There are profits, but there are losses as well. Failure is inevitable. Japanese agriculture has lost sight of its direction and has become unstable. It's strayed away from the basic principles of agriculture and has become a business. And he was looking at it, you know, obviously through his lens in that country at the time, but it's like, well, now we see that multiplied. Well, certainly in this country, you know. Well, they, um, they got it from us. <laughs> yeah. They adopted all these very healthy farmer farming principles <laughs> from us. You know, like they didn't grow wheat over there before. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, he, he talks about like how now we're supposed to grow wheat. Why can't we grow these very great grains that we have grown here in this country for centuries yeah. on this land in this way that we've grown for centuries? That works. I don't understand why we have to change. What I'm trying to say is I'm sure everything wasn't perfect, mm -hmm. but it sounded like it was at least better than what it was becoming. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, you know, to that point, as he's watching these changes occur, you know, circling back around again to like how he was trying to prove his point in his actions. All, he knew that all he had was the concept in his head. 
And when he couldn't get that across just in words and he had to do and he had to demonstrate it, it took him 30 plus years of trial and error and refining it. And he admits that yeah. to get it to the point where it was as viable as it was. And people could come and visit and go, oh, wow, I can't believe you're pulling this off. You know, so even he didn't see it as like this simple, easy magic bullet. But the, the, the hope would be that if more people realized what was able to be accomplished and he eliminated a lot of that need of trial and error by doing it himself, then other people could kind of hit the ground running with his proven track record and go from there. And I'm sure, you know, as is seems evidenced in his way of writing that his hope was that that, that is what would happen, that yeah. that could become the staple way to think about agriculture. But it, um, well, it has yet to do so. <laughs> I mean, some things have happened with the permaculture movement. Yeah. Um, and some people the, like turning their front front urban lawns into gardens, and the, the th some of the thinking is shifting on a small scale level, anyway. And I think that's where it has to start because, yeah. like, the companies don't seem. Like if they can let these fields essentially die and, you know, cause they're fertilized and pesticides to death. Like I spent a couple of years on the coast of Northeastern North Carolina and we don't have it here. We don't see it here on the mountains. Like you see the, the small tobacco plots and you see like the corn fields and you see like- Oh yeah, the cotton, there's a lot of cotton. But, but yeah, when you go out there, there's, there's cotton, there's sweet potatoes, there's mostly cotton that I drove past and all fields were like brown, kind of that weird gross color, which means they've been sprayed with Roundup. Mm. And I've just never seen that. And I was just like, that is not great. <laughs> so I'm assuming that's sort of what's been happening to those fields out in California, but mm -hmm. for longer. Think about like if enough people were just growing a, a chunk of their food in their yeah. lawn. Yeah. Um, then you know the less people are having to go to the store to buy the less that those big growers are having to grow yeah you know so like it would it it could it's it won't it wouldn't be the be all end all i think at this point unless there was a huge big movement shift towards it very very uh fluidly but it, it still you know maybe moves us there an inch at a time as as people think of it that way you know yeah i mean when i was reading this book i was like wait i i should grow something <laughs> i mean and i was like maybe i should try to grow a tomato i could grow that on my on my balcony out here in a big pot and i was like i don't know anything about growing much like i've got some you know medicinal herbs i should learn some of that stuff <laughs> At some point, I, I, you know, if I had like infinite time and infinite, like if I could clone <laughs> myself as well. Maybe I, uh, the next uh, book to tackle would be his natural way of farming book. So you can get into the how to <laughs> nitty gritty and go from there. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I eat less tomatoes because they're acidic, but I like them. He eats more. And so I thought, hmm, or maybe some peppers. He likes hot mm -hmm. peppers. Um, so just start small and then maybe when I get some sort of yard at some point, mm -hmm. get a little, get a little more creative. 
<laughs> rewild the yard <laughs> with food. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the next thought, this idea about healthy food and environment equals healthy people. Yeah. You can eat unhealthily for a while, but sooner or later, it'll it'll definitely take its toll on your body. I think we're not going to go into too much specifics about like what actually types of foods are like what the idea about what is healthy and what is not unhealthy. And then also you can have be in like a environment that's very stressful for a while and it's fine, but eventually those two things will definitely take their tolls. And yeah. So if you can, oh, anyway, I'll read the quote. Extravagance <laughs> <laughs> of desire is the fundamental cause which has led the world into its present predicament. Fast rather than slow, more rather than less. This flashy development is linked directly to society's impending collapse. It has only served to separate man from nature. Humanity must stop indulging in the desire for material possessions and personal gain and move instead towards spiritual awareness. Agriculture must change from large mechanical operations to small farms attached only to life itself. Material life and diet should be given a simple place. If this is done, work becomes pleasant and spiritual breathing space becomes plentiful. There's a lot in there. Yeah, he, well, a lot of it lines up with like what we were just talking about even in terms of like the focus on getting it back into the hands of the people and being these small efforts adding up to a bigger thing you know our whole society is geared towards buying stuff and, and not towards anything else and there's other things in life besides going to walmart and getting like fairy wings here you can't <laughs> see on the podcast but you know anyway i got these for halloween well but like he says the whole fast versus slow more than less you know it's when you get into that that go 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 yeah it becomes increasingly harder to get that that breathing room that's necessary to simplify and appreciate that simplification you know it's almost like a, a hit of a drug that you're just like you're used to that what's next what's next what's next and you have to like break that cycle in order to realize that you never needed that cycle in the first place or what it was doing to you that was detrimental you know right um, and it's, it's it's a habit it's so easy to 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 get in there and stay in there and it's so hard to to get outside of it and break it you know i had to do that that's the reason i had yeah a bunch of health issues one of the contributing factors and i had to you know basically step out of my life and stop doing anything a giant pause button but now, like, because I'm had to go back into my life, and now I have to go back into working full time. I can see, you know, when I'm going into that. Right now, like, I can't, I can't avoid it. I sort of, I have to be there sometimes because of like things like mandatory overtime and things like that, just to, you know, have a job that I can use to support myself. Hopefully, not forever. I'll have a different mode of income. I get upset. You know, I'm like, this is gonna hurt me. This is this is gonna well, this is this is unhealthy for me. I mean, it's at least I know it. Um, I think I'm more aware. Well, you know what's interesting is I feel like, and and you 
you might have you are one of many who are a bit of a canary in the coal mine i think for the this kind of ongoing generation where people are increasingly like wait a minute here i didn't sign up for this like this is no way is this really living like i'm earning a living like why do i have to earn a living i was born and i'm here you know right. and that i think that kind of recognition is some of the first things that we do need to see at a larger generational and cultural level to begin to shift away from that go 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 because that's a, that's the first step important question to be asking is like is this even worth it why do we really need to do it this way and then that that's then necessity becomes the mother of invention as they say to to go a different way right. um, and i and i yeah. I think it's worth noting, you know, he, he said in that quote, the thing about moving towards spiritual awareness, there's a part later in the book uh, where he kind of talks a little bit more, I think because one of the people living on the farm had brought it up or something, but he, it wasn't like a very concise quote worth including, but just to kind of dovetail it, he mentions how, whether it's Buddhism, Christianity, Shintoism, whatever, he felt like the reason what he was doing resonated with people of all different religious faiths and spiritualities was because he felt like that was just kind of showing how much he was getting at the heart of something that's important to life on earth. And so it didn't really matter so much to him what sort of faith or whatever you wanted to attach to it. That was just completely a personal choice and an aside. So when he t speaks about you know, moving towards a spiritual awareness in a quote like this, he's not meaning any one particular thing being the right way in that sense. Um, he's definitely meaning it in a, in a broader sort of the staff of life sense, I guess. Is <laughs> he's not talking about the heavens. He's talking about life on earth and, and we all share that in common. Yeah. Like this is about, the practical and also like a little bit about the philosophical of what is the thing of nature that we live in mm -hmm. because that's of the earth so yeah you can you can see that that yeah it doesn't matter what you believe is up above because we're talking about down here we're talking yeah. about like the here and now <laughs> here and now the earth the soil how to live how to eat i think you know, you're uh I think your next quote there kind of digs in a little bit to what makes a more satisfying life, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Yes, it does. So the next quote is, the more the farmer increases the scale of his operation, the more his body and spirit are dissipated, and the further he falls away from spiritually satisfying life. A life of small-scale farming may appear to be primitive, but in living such a life, it becomes possible to contemplate the great way, the path of spiritual awareness, which involves all alternatives? What is that word? Oh, uh, attentiveness. Attentiveness and care for the ordinary activities of everyday life. I believe that if one fathoms deeply one's own neighborhood and the everyday world in which he lives, the greatness of the world will be revealed. It's like a, another way of saying that journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, kind of, you know, like look at what's 
right around you and what's right in front of you. And, and if you can really get into the heart of that, then it's like, ah, you know, epiphanies can come out from there. I mean, that's at least certainly what seems to have happened with him. So of course that's how he would see it. <laughs> it's also saying he thinks that like, it seems like he thinks that the everyday, what people might think of, oh, that's boring is not it's important stuff like farming you may say have this idea about farming but it's actually like the heart of the matter part mm -hmm. of the life the the very important mm -hmm. instead of instead of just chasing whatever shiny instantaneous thing floats past you <laughs> i mean i i do really really need that but <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I do. <laughs> it's very important. Oh, but I had a discussion with, with my husband about this today because we were like, well, it's, we may not need some of this, what may be called frivolous stuff, but it does help. So like, it's good to have some extra stuff, you know, just some stuff for fun. Mm -hmm. Um. I think when you get into trouble, it's just getting, you know, that's all you want. If that's the the aim, right. yeah. Right. The ultimate goal is to just have immense, uh, limitless, unending acquisition. Right. Then it's like, well, yeah, no, that's not sustainable. <laughs> I need to go to into space. Yeah. <laughs> while people don't have houses and are homeless. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff yeah. like that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of. No, no, you can't begrudge the average everyday person who is just trying to cope with the day-to-day -day grind, you know, some things here and there that just help make their day-to-day -day grind tolerable, dare I say, enjoyable even, you know, bring that, bring that moment of peace and a smile that they might not otherwise be getting. And that's a far cry from the constant, like I just need the next gadget constantly and the next everything and everything has to be brand new. And and then when it's outdated, I'm gonna throw it away and get a new one. And you know, yeah. I, I need that newest <laughs> iPhone. I just I need it. It's really funny because we went, when we got new phones, they were like really surprised that we had our phones for such a long time. I'm like, yeah, we're gonna keep them until we It's like, do can't. they work? Do they do their purpose? Are they relevant? Okay. <laughs> That's mean, it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Interestingly, in his uh, last chapter in section two, he talks a lot about how science strives to make things better for people, but can often complicate and mess things up, mostly due to the reductionist way that science looks at the world and how consequently scientists are very specialized and so then each scientist kind of sees only their small piece of the puzzle and science may look at the world in a disconnected way and since everything in the world is very connected that's where the issues can creep in so he's out and out not anti-science i mean no. heck, he was a microbiology major but he through his own experience and observations kind of saw where the shortcomings were and how the the hard line edge of you know sort of just he didn't say this my words but like you know science is god it can never be wrong you know and it's like uh no like it's it's constantly always shifting and changing because because why well back to his point you know it's it's all about 
at the end, you know, nature and we can't get too ahead of ourselves and big in the head, assuming that we will always or do know better. He, yeah. he said, before researchers, I love this, before researchers become researchers, they should become philosophers. They should consider what the human goal is. What is it that humanity should create? Doctors should first determine at a fundamental level, what is it that human beings depend on for life? Modern research divides nature into tiny pieces and conducts tests that conform neither with natural law or practical experience. The results are arranged for the convenience of research, not according to the needs of the farmer. Scientists think that they understand nature, and that is the attitude they take because they're convinced that they can understand nature. They are committed to investigating it and putting it to use. But I think an understanding of nature lies beyond the reach of human intelligence. Pretty much the theme through the whole book is stepping outside of just the human limited perspective and thinking about nature in a much bigger capacity. I mean, you know, it existed before us, it'll exist after us. And if, if we have a certain healthy reality check reverence to that, we'll probably be able to uh, fit ourselves into it a, a little bit better, you know? <laughs> and then lastly, in that vein of thinking, he says, since advanced technology had nothing to do with growing this grain, it stands as a contradiction to the assumptions of modern science. Anyone who will come and see these fields and accept their testimony will feel deep misgivings over the question of whether or not humans know nature and of whether or not nature can even be known within the confines of human understanding. The irony is that science has served only to show how small human knowledge is. You know, he says the irony is, and it is, it is, but I think that's probably the nice thing about science, you know? I think the nice thing about it is that it does, it should make us more humble and make us more in awe at like, wow, there's so much out there. We've barely scratched the surface. And not like, oh, we know everything. We're, <laughs> we're awesome humans. <laughs> we're like, no, we don't. We know a lot. Maybe just enough to get us into too much trouble. Yeah, that's kind of his point. And I love that the whole before researchers become researchers or before doctors become doctors thing. Because I thought before, like, you know, how often is it that there's been some new great wonder, fill in the blank, drug, food, gadget, whatever, that like short, shortly thereafter, maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months, maybe it's years. But at some point then it gets redacted because they're like, oh, shoot. Well, actually it does this bad thing. We don't know how to dispose of it properly. So now we're dealing with the ramifications of toxic byproduct years down the road. And it's like, well, if we just, before anything was allowed to be released on any large mass scale, if the people who were going to put it out there could prove that they knew that they could walk it backwards, essentially, right. you know, then to prove that it wasn't going to cause harm definitively or how to dispose of it properly or whatever the case may be, um, then release it to the public. I think, you know, that sort of lets be on the, uh, the immediate sort of proactive instead of retroactive on these things, it would solve a lot of problems. And that's kind of, I think what he was sort of saying with that is like, if, if it, if, if, people in these roles approached things this way first, maybe they wouldn't have to scramble so much later to fix whatever it is. 
they're, they're looking at it maybe not in the best interest of humanity overall and mm-hmm. and he's thinking maybe if they were philosophers that that would help them to do so give a little bit of a balance to their perspective and motivations he does speak to like nuclear power at some point throughout out the book and right and i mean he'd already been passed away when the tsunami took out the fukushima reactor and they're still dealing with leaks from that thing you know and it's just like once again he was <laughs> seeing the writing on the wall before i could tell you nuclear power is bad i was like hey this doesn't make any sense solar power makes more sense because you got sun everywhere <laughs> like everywhere mostly mostly unless you're in maybe somewhere with less sun but it just makes more sense yeah. and and you don't have the uh the stuff the waste the nuclear waste that you can't do anything with it's just toxic why why would you do that yeah. i have no idea <laughs> i'm in agreement with him i have no idea we have been talking about money <laughs> capitalism a little bit um so the next set of quotes he does talk about a lot um is that the drive of the capitalist mindset is contradictory to sustaining health and a peaceful life um, he never he never says it in so many no, direct, he, direct words he does not he does but not he's so, very clear about what he means <laughs> yes those were my words um, they might have been Ellen's words, but I can't, you know, we work on these things together. So who says what gets kind of synergized together, but definitely he does talk about business. He does talk about money. And um, so I don't want to put words into his mouth, but yes. So the first one, the first quote is, I do not particularly like the word work. Human beings are the only animals who have to work. And I think this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. I love his wording here. I love it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Other animals make their living by living, but people work like crazy thinking they have to in order to stay alive. The bigger the job, the greater the challenge, the more wonderful they think it is. <laughs> it would be good to give up that way of thinking and live an easy, comfortable life with plenty of free time. I agree. Yes. For human beings, a life of such simplicity would be possible if one worked to produce directly his daily necessities. In such a life, work is not work as people generally think of it, but simply doing what needs to be done. Yeah, just makes sense. <laughs> I I agree. He does talk about like how like when farming was smaller and back in the day, farmers had more time like he said the new year's holiday was like three months and then it kept getting shortened and it's like now it's maybe two weeks or a week um where they don't have they used to have all this leisure time to just write haikus he found some haikus on the shrine the local shrine i believe and um he's like they don't have time to do this you don't have time to just live anymore the next quote so for the farmer and his work serve nature and all is well 
farming used to be sacred work when humanity fell away from this idea of modern commercial agriculture rose. When the farmer began to grow crops to make money, he forgot the real principles of agriculture. Until now, the line of thought among modern economists has been that small-scale self-sufficient farming is wrong, that this is primitive kind of agriculture, one that should be eliminated as quickly as possible. The goal is to have only a few people in farming. In my opinion, if 100% of people were farming, it would be ideal. There is just a quarter acre of arable land for each person in Japan. If natural farming were practiced, a farmer would also have plenty of time for leisure and social activities. I think this is the most direct path towards making this country a happy, pleasant land. I like that he uses the word pleasant a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just be pleasant. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some issues here because, like... It might as, not uh, be relevant for the scale of the world population in our time versus yeah. his time and things yeah. like that. I mean, he was singling Japan out, but I'm sure even its um, population is probably bigger now than it was then, especially relative to its relatively small land mass. But, um, but still, I mean, if you think about the fact that, and I think this is very safe to say without any hardcore uh, proof and statistic numbers to throw at you, I think it's safe to still say that most people, especially in developed countries, do absolutely diddly squat for production of their own needs. Mm -hmm. And so if you did, you know, say tomorrow, just say, okay, everyone, I mean, this is very pie in the sky here. Don't think I'm saying that this is in any way practical, but, but conceptually, right? If you were like, okay, everybody, just go like do your own thing and trade amongst each other keep it simple you know you're growing your own food you're you know maybe you get yarn from your neighbor but you weave your own cloth or you know there's this this smaller collective support network instead of the big reliance factor or even take all of it out of the picture except for the food because that's his main point if literally right. everybody was just growing things where they could grow them yeah that would have such an immense impact you know it's like there would be so much less need for food all yeah. of the big infrastructure right exactly like if you had enough people doing that it, and you would it would sort of have to kind of crumble or change they would mm -hmm. be forced to change because people wouldn't be buying as much stuff at the grocery store and also, like, it would go a long way to helping with hunger and food insecurity in this in this country because there's just people without food. So when, when we got our land, my husband's grandmother was sort of flabbergasted by it. And she said to my mother-in-law, what? Why are they wanting to do that? Why do they want to farm? Like, we worked so hard to get off the don't they know right. farming's hard work what are they nuts you know but again she's from a generation that was in that transitional period of agriculture scaling up on the industrial side of things and it's not to say that non-industrial farming isn't work i mean it is in right. a sense i mean you have to put the time in but i think what's important to note about masanobo's methods that stand out even from your 
typical organic grow ops now even is that it's called do nothing farming for a reason, right? Like he was literally trying to find the ways to make it as simple as possible. And I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently, even before we started digging back into this book to do this episode about how like, cause I've been doing some work part-time on a local farm just right. for this season. And they have, a, 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 it's all organically grown in terms of like no inputs are used other than like what's resources on the property, like their own chicken manure and compost that they've made. And so it's really healthy soil. It's clean food. You know, they're, it's, it's nice. It's all nice. It but, and yeah. there's that appeal of these clean, orderly, straight roads. And, but then I sometimes walk around amongst it and I'm like, you know, but you end up with more issues, d different types of issues of like soil concerns and pest concerns, because even though it's not as sterile as a fumigated mass scale thing, it's still not how nature would grow the stuff, right? So that, that got me thinking about well, like, what did indigenous people do? Um, I mean, some of the bigger agri agricultural, less nomadic tribes did have different like, you know, terracing bed methods and flooding fields methods. And so it's not to say that they didn't have things to scale at other time periods in other cultures. But for the most part, I think I don't imagine that a lot of tribes that still had some agricultural component weren't just making everything in like pretty little rows with a picket fence. You know what I mean? Like, because right, right. it's so much work to just keep up an aesthetic that yeah. at the end of the day isn't even necessary. Like you, I could go throw a handful of pumpkin seeds out into my crazy mess of a meadow and plants would grow. I would just right. have to hunt to find them hidden in the grass, but they would be there. You know what I mean? And I think that's kind of what he was getting at with the do nothing farming is like, how far can we push this mess of sort of organized chaos and still get a yield and he was able to figure it out. And I hope that one day before I die, I can be a fraction as successful as he was. That's the goal. I mean, that would be a really cool like experiment to to do if you had the time and we could uh, <clears throat> document it perhaps uh, as a as a project or or roll it into the school yeah that that could be a good school, a school project yeah that the incorporation of the herbal and medicinal component into the do nothing system I, I so, think that yeah. there could be crossover. Oh, yeah. There. Just to quickly reference here for the to make the point, to make sure that we cover this a little bit more. The term he uses, do nothing farming, um, this is kind of what Masanobu has to say about it. He says, the usual way to go about developing a method is to ask, how about trying this? How about trying that? bringing in a variety of techniques one upon the other. And this is modern agriculture and it results in making the farm busier. He says, my way was the opposite. I was aiming at a pleasant natural way of farming, farming as simply as possible without, within and in, within cooperation with the natural environment, which results in making the work easier instead of harder. So how about not doing this? How about not doing that? 
and that was my way of thinking. I ultimately reached the conclusion that there was no need to plow, no need to apply fertilizer, no need to make compost, no need to use insecticide. When you get right down to it, there are very few agricultural practices that are really necessary. The reason man's improved techniques seem to be necessary is that the natural balance has been badly upset beforehand by some of those same techniques and the land has become dependent on them. This line of reasoning not only applies to agriculture, but other aspects of human society as well. Doctors and medicine become necessary when people create a sickly environment. Formal schooling has no intrinsic value, but becomes necessary when humanity creates a condition in which one must become, quote unquote, educated just to get along. Um, so I thought that was a, a good point where he kind of tied in, tied the principle, the philosophy behind it into some broader concepts as well. But but definitely the point being that um, he was finding ways to work within natural means that eventually got to the point where, yeah, I don't even need to compost. I mean, how many permaculture people and biodynamic oh my gardeners, myself included, have their eyes going, oh, like what? Biodynamics, their whole shtick is fertilizer. Yes. <laughs> the whole shtick is that. That's it. Like it works. Don't get me wrong. It totally works. And it's another very, very natural seasonal ebb and flow way to do things. But that's probably in, along the lines of things that he was experimenting with where he was like, oh, well, by not doing A, B, and C, I don't even end up really needing to do, you know, D, E, and F or whatever. I just really question why things are done this way. Mm -hmm. like really taking the time, like, 30 years time he had, refining this process <laughs> and i think it's he was in a situation where he could do that and i don't know if he explained did his family have the land i think he did go back to his dad's property is okay. where he did all this on yeah so so he didn't have to like necessarily work a nine to five and then do his farming on the side it was really cool that like he was able to really dig into this for everyone. Like, I, I feel like it's a, it's like, here, I did this for you. Yeah. I, for you know, I, I want to make the world better. And I had a question and I wanted to answer it. And here you go. And, and it's just like, oh, for me. I thank you. <laughs> and I, I thought that the line, uh, humanity creates the condition, which one must be educated. It's sort of like we've created these, uh, concepts, these sort of rules, but we've created them. Mm -hmm. So we can uncreate them if they don't make any sense. Yeah, right. And I think it's important to note in the wording there. I mean, he was very specific with the wording. He's not saying that learning things or that educating yourself is dumb or pointless. Right. He's saying formal schooling, i.e. the system we've built up around it, the idea that you have to do this in order to do this. He's like, basically, that's all what's bogus. I mean, we've made the, we've said that it's important, so we've made it important. But what does that really mean? You know, you have to go to college to get a good job. Like it's some jobs say we need you to have a college degree. And I'm like, why? Yeah. I'm not dumb. I just didn't go to college. I mean, I went to college. I didn't graduate. But or, or if there's things that you would need to learn that clearly are a skilled profession, like, you know, being a a surgeon or something like that. It's like how much of the system of formal education is just fluff excess you're paying for 
when you could just be getting into the nitty gritty of, wow, I've said that word too many times. <laughs> you, could, you could be getting it down to the, to the, uh, okay. A surgeon pun, bare bones, uh -huh. the meat, down to the meat of the issue. Um, there's another one of, uh, yeah. Of just learning what you need to know to do the thing instead of all the superfluous, uh, bureaucracy of it, you know? What did you like best about this book? Ooh, the book. <laughs> no, um, the book. The book. Uh, I appreciate how timeless it is. I mean, it, you know, you could say it's a little sad that some of it's still so relevant, but, I but what I mean is he was growing up and learning what he was learning in an early part of the last century, and he was seeing exceedingly rapid growth and leaps and bounds for like human technology and capability and stuff. And in the midst of all that, he looked to something that transcends all of it. It transcends all of human existence. And that's the cycle and existence of nature as a whole. And then he humbly realized that and articulated it, um, that life, you know, being intrinsic to nature can't exist outside of it. And so then he tackles the question of how does one become more conscious of that and find ways to be symbiotic with it? And I feel the conclusions that he reaches overall um, could be said to be universal truths in that sense. I mean, they're, they're understandings that are inherent to other creatures on our planet, many indigenous cultures throughout history. So whoever is in the present and modern time reading the book would do well to remember that, that he's, he's really getting down to something that's far exceeds the here and now even. And it requires that understanding to take those next steps. And it definitely has that quality because, you know, we're definitely reading it many, many years later and it makes, I'm like, oh yeah. It's like, yeah, why isn't everybody, duh, you know, <laughs> like, this should be required reading material in the formal school. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is, uh, if you had to pick then? What's your um, favorite part? I think he did a really, really good job about um, taking the reader through his journey from like how he first had this realization through his whole process, and and really he's not he's not very shy about like telling you how he succeeded and how he failed. He's like, mm -hmm. well, this did not work. It was a hot mess, <laughs> and I and I like that honesty. Um, he definitely was bragging about how he succeeded. It felt like he was like, <laughs> I did this and it was awesome. Um, so he was pretty excited that, about what he was doing and that it was working. That's fine. We can give him that. I, I would be excited too because he's done all this trial and error, right? And, mm -hmm. he's like, and I felt like it was a very practical book. Like there's a lot, there's a lot still in this book. I guess there's more in the other books, but there's a lot of like, how he kept like the crows away from the seeds and all this stuff. Like there's a lot of practical, like growing things and about rice and about like, cause he grew mostly rice and mm -hmm. other grains. And um, so I feel like if you wanted to go rice, you could actually use this book as like a jumping off place of how to, how to, how to grow rice and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And you know, his thoughts on nature, what what is real food and then why everyone should be a farmer <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think um 
something that I'd kind of forgotten about and then reminded myself of when I was flipping back through the book for these notes um, was the food mandalas that he drew. He drew a couple of little sort of infographics before infographics were a thing that show one is kind of like almost, you know, at first glance almost looks like a little mycelium because it's like all these little and trail spiraled out. And the other one is a more typical kind of wheel of the year calendar style pie chart. And um, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'll, I'm going to put them on the screen. So okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. You'll be able to see them. You won't see me and Ellen for a minute. You will see <laughs> these mandalas. Cool. Yeah, he called them food mandalas. But they're basically just uh, kind of showing how the different species of food interrelate and, and, and are, you know, related in the ecosystem and stuff. And then also like what times of year to be uh, eating most seasonally and most naturally for, for where he was, you know. So I, I think it would be really cool to make something like that, you know, relevant for your own backyard or your own, you know, microclimate or your own region or whatever it is, you know, fun little sort of sciencey, artsy, personalized healthy eating project because <laughs> he has like a lot of fish and i think japan they're like you know an island nation so mm -hmm. there 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 are a lot of fish there and mm -hmm. i mean i guess if you live by the ocean you would also include this i don't eat fish so i was like well i would just sort of not include that but he's got like you know they're like well what am i supposed to eat for veggies in october and you know it's nice it's, it's very readable and understandable yeah. The, this this I, this whole idea about food he talks a lot about and which we're we're not getting into but it's it's really amazing that he's talking about this back in the seventies. Yeah. Oh yeah, he does kind of dig into that about like people eating with their mind, like I think I want this and this is what sounds good and all this, but then like eating less for the sake of nourishment wow. and eating less for the for the sake of living, right? But, but also, like, if we just get our food from McDonald's all the time or something like that, I think we don't even... We're, you just we, kind of wreck your palate. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're also removed from, like, what what is what is food, what is around you, what is, like, mm, you're yeah. farther and farther away, like, you're not growing it. But also, it's super processed, super packaged. The first time I saw Brussels sprouts on a stock and how oh. they actually grow, because Whole Foods had... Usually they have them in bunch in bags. You know, you see the Brussels sprouts off the stock, and you never know. Like, you never even think about like, wait, how are they in the field? Uh -huh. But sometimes they have them still on this big old yeah. stock, and you're like, dude, I don't know anything about food <laughs> because I'm always just getting it at the grocery store. Yeah, it reminds me of how uh, when we used to work for a big grocery conglomerate together, people would come in and like berate the poor produce employees about why they didn't have some certain thing in stock and the produce employees would have to be explaining to them like because we can't order any why aren't you ordering any because it's not seasonally available well, don't you get your food from somewhere else yeah but everything has a growing season everywhere like sometimes things are just not in season <laughs> like yeah welcome to nature 101 <laughs> there's a reason we don't have cherries all the time and there's cherry season and you know I'm trying to uh flip to the food mandala to see if anything else jumped out at me okay about it yeah i mean i guess we kind of generally covered it but it's it's a uh, yeah it's definitely very inspiring to kind of see the visual representation breakdown of 
how you could plot out a sort of seasonal eating calendar. And if you're trying to get more back to basics with simple foods and letting the food do the talking for itself, instead of feeling like you have to have everything processed and overly seasoned and super fancified in its cooking strategies to make it taste good, instead of just finding ways to uh, accentuate um, the, the thing itself. Although I, I will say too, you know, when he, when he was writing that, it was kind of getting to be more of the height of like TV dinner culture and fast food and all that. Yeah. Um, and I will say probably one of the things that stood out a lot just within our lifetimes is how there is some upper echelons in the culinary world who are making their, you know, Michelin star, super fancy chef careers built on the idea of simplicity, using less ingredients, but let the ingredients do the talking and really finding those special ways to highlight the, the thing itself instead of 50 bajillion fancy tricks to make it something different, you know? And, and I think that's a big, that's a big sort of shifting point in, in our, in the developed world's culinary escapades, especially as far as what's trendy and cool. And it's nice to sort of see that, you know, it might, it's still not very approachable to the everyday person. You know, I'm just a nerd who watches a lot of cooking shows, but, um, but I, I don't think that it, you know, I don't think that was necessarily the case in his time because back then it was like the cool thing to be like, how can we put this weird meat congealment into a can and go, wow, look, it's meat in a can, you know? I, like, mean, I mean, I had I had a microwave. I, I saw a very old microwave cookbook. So people were just so fascinated by the newfangled device and it, it was uh, future and science fiction and all that stuff. I mean, I don't know how they thought, but that's how it felt like when I that's saw That's how it was book. advertised, yeah. Okay, but so I did pick up on that. I think forged food is becoming more and more accessible and more the idea of that is kind of piquing people's interest. Yeah. Right. So I think I saw, okay. On, on the PBS news hour, I believe, and don't, don't a hundred percent quote me, but I believe that I saw an article about this lady, a single mom, I'm not remembering it correctly, but there was a person, she didn't have a lot of money. She was literally foraging for some of her meals. And it was on this mainstream media outlet is that people don't know what is just outside their door. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or even sometimes, because I remember a conversation I had with a, a local ag agent um who was saying how well sometimes you know when there's community gardens and pan and community pantries you know that are full of donated produce or whatever you get them into the hands of people who don't have anything but they don't know what to do with it because they have been subsisting on the convenience foods and they don't so they're just like you know what am i supposed to do with a turnip you know this doesn't equate to food in my mind <laughs> you know and and that's something that's been generationally lost, you yeah. know, I think. And I, but I think for his time, you know, Masanobu Fukuoka was kind of making the point about like, no, these real simple things are food in, in such a way that you don't even have to 
stress and act like you shouldn't have to stress and agonize yourself over what am i gonna do with this you, you know because like it. just yeah exactly you just you just eat it and, and i honestly i don't know how to cook a turnip <laughs> so <laughs> um but uh i am i am fortunate to be able to have access to fruits and vegetables i watched a documentary a long time ago that said that like if everyone just was able to eat more fruits and vegetables even if they were conventional it would revolutionize everything <laughs> like it would make everyone more healthier blah 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 because people just eat too many canned stuff too many processed stuff and anyway it's a huge this is a this is a big <laughs> complicated thing about food and yeah i think that's why we didn't pull too much out of the book and about that yeah going through this book it was like just like big idea big idea big idea like boom right. whoa boom whoa boom yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah yeah but i i agree i mean his knack for philosophizing is kind of what earned the book a nickname of zen and the art of farming i've seen people kind of refer to it that way in like reviews and stuff um but you know because he presents a lot of beautiful and intriguing thoughts and concepts throughout it some of which clearly point towards application in life in a broader sense even beyond just farming but he doesn't always take the time to go into depth with all of those thoughts he just kind of hints at it and then is on to something else and it's like oh but that was a good thought where were you going with that i want to hear more <laughs> just sort of like what was in his head yeah and there was a lot yeah so what was your biggest takeaway? As previously said, just kind of wishing that I had read it so many years sooner. Uh, but, you know, to everything there is a season, right? It's better late than never. But besides that, I have an immense gratitude that someone out there in the world, regardless of his timeline in relation to ours and so forth, bothered to and was able to articulate so profoundly, but also simply this way of life i mean if seriously considered and adhered to it could so gently save and nourish humankind and the planet as a whole and prior to reading this book i had already been studying a lot about permaculture methods of agriculture and the terms and the origins of that philosophy and when it sprang up as a thing and a movement and it came about in australia in the 60s but there's no doubt that like people like masanobu fukuoka were were their grandfather-like inspirations for that concept. I mean, he is the OG organic permi hipster. <laughs> <It's> the, <laughs> Masanobu was doing permaculture before it was cool. <laughs> I, did, I did that in a t-shirt with a face. <laughs> yeah, OG, OG permi hipster. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yes. I, I, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about you? And I noticed that many of the ideas and the concepts were very familiar. And the only parts that were really new were like how to grow rice, like the actual just uh, step, you know, actual yeah. agriculture parts, because I have not uh -huh. grown rice. Sadly, we still have much of the same issues that he raises in the book, you know, around food, growing food. And it's seen that over the years this book has been written, these ideas have spread out from Japan, which is really neat, came to 
the brain of someone who lives in Western North Carolina. I didn't even, I grew up half here and half in Brooklyn, New York. So like I'm part city girl transplanted into the country. But even so, like these ideas had sort of permeated through the years and across time. So yeah, I guess my biggest takeaway is that the world really is all connected and maybe solving these problems is gonna take longer than he hoped. But maybe by realizing and utilizing this connection, we can, you know, have that revolution that is so needed. That's why it's, they have There's been so these far. people passing the torch and carrying it on even after his time to keep to keep hope alive. Well, who on that note, and this might be a um, an obvious question at this point, but Jennifer, who would you recommend this book for? Um, so anyone. Anyone can read this book, even if they don't understand all the ideas, because I definitely didn't understand all the ideas, especially some of the some of the philosophy. I a lot of it I understood, but some of it I was just like, I don't understand it. And it's an excellent book for anyone who's going to be farming or not. Yeah, I second that. I mean, there's there's enough conceptually in it for provoking deeper thoughts about what it means to be in a human civilization and of the natural world and so forth, which makes it. Um, an interesting treatise on existence in general beyond just what's important about farming and how to farm. I mean, that's that's the baseline and that's a huge component of it, obviously. But I think, um, you know, certainly people with any interest in like sort of um, Asian philosophies, um, you know, just gardening and plants in general, just intriguing new concepts and ways of looking at things. I mean, there's so many different reasons to, to pick up the book. And if you're not familiar with some of these ideas, it might be a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't do what I did. Don't wait don't 10, wait. 15 years. Just it read out. it now. There's an audible. <laughs> there's no time to wait. There's an audible. If you have audible, if you want to listen, there's very, like, very short chapters, very small bites. Densely yeah. packed, though, all that stuff. And there are pictures, which I like. Oh, yeah. As yeah. adults, we don't often get, there he is. There's this, the man himself. Anyway, <laughs> um, I like I like pictures. If we had to pick just one quote as a favorite from the book, which one would you pick? Well, that's a tough call, but I narrowed it down to this one for now, <laughs> just because of kind of how it ends up. Um, he says, the narrow view of natural farming says that it is good for the farmer to apply organic material to the soil and good to raise animals, and that, uh, that this is the best and most efficient way to put nature to use. To speak in terms of personal practice, this is fine, but with this way alone, the spirit of true natural farming cannot be kept alive. This kind of narrow natural farming is analogous to the school of swordsmanship known as the one-stroke school, which seeks victory through the skillful yet self-conscious application of technique. Modern industrial farming follows the two-stroke school, which believes that victory can be won by just delivering the greatest barrage of strokes. Pure natural farming, by contrast, is the no-stroke school. It goes nowhere and it seeks no victory. Putting do-nothing into practice is the one thing that the farmer should strive to accomplish. 
Lao Tzu spoke of the one active nature. And I think that if he were a farmer, he would certainly practice natural farming. And I believe that Gandhi's way, a methodless method, acting with non-winning and non-opposing state of mind, is also akin to natural farming. When it is understood that no one loses joy and happiness in the attempt, when it is understood that one loses joy and happiness in the attempt to possess them, the essence of natural farming will be realized. The ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. Like, wow, that's a yep. bold claim. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. And it also, you know, kind of elevates it back up again where it's like, if we were doing this in such a way that it, it could it could feel healthy for us and that we felt called to do it, then maybe it wouldn't seem like a drudgery and maybe it wouldn't cause so many problems. And that's when it becomes about something bigger than just, I'm a farmer, you know? Um, okay. And then my quote was, uh, sometime, something born from human pride and the quest for pleasure cannot be considered true culture. True culture is born within nature and is simple, humble, and pure. Lacking true culture, humanity will perish. When human, when people rejected natural food and took up refined food instead, society set out on a path towards its own destruction. This is because such food is not the product of true culture. Food is life, and life must not step away from nature. Well, a final note to the namesake of this book, because I think that that's interesting and worth pointing out, is sort of was born and explained thusly, these are Masanobu's words, among the young people who come to these mountain huts, there are those poor in body and spirit who have given up all hope. And I am only an old farmer who grieves that he cannot even provide them with a pair of sandals. But there's still one thing that I can give them, one straw. I picked up some straw from in front of the hut and I said, from just this one straw, a revolution could begin. And if you read it, straw is very important to his whole concept. He Part of his me methodology of how he does, he does talk a lot about straw. Yeah. <laughs> I'd really like to thank everyone for listening. And, and if you're watching on YouTube, thank you for watching. You can listen to the podcast. Follow us. We're on uh, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, the Facebook group, uh, Anger. And all those links are in the description. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so through Anchor at $1, $5, or $10 a month. And donations go towards helping us with our future projects, including taking the show on the road to do live on-site interviews, as well as to help us build and launch our herbal education curriculum, aptly titled The People's Herb School. See, we're um, just getting back on track here with this uh, with this podcast after our summer break. So stay tuned for what the, uh, the next edition will entail as we plan our move. So we don't quite know at this point what's coming up next. It will be a surprise for you and us. <laughs> but it will be announced on said social media when we have it locked down. Yes. All right. Well, uh, thank you. And we'll talk to you later.
Bye. Bye, everyone.